Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He's risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up took hold of his feet, worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, as we read this account. It's, it's not just a story. It's history. And so we would pray that you would in our hearts testify the truth to us. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Be seated. You, you might not be surprised, but today um, we are going to talk about the resurrection. And here's, here's how we are going to look at this. Here's a question. Can a reasonable, <clears throat> reasoning, intelligent person actually believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I want us to spend some time talking about why believing in the resurrection is not only a reasonable thing to believe, but it is actually the most reasonable thing to believe. The most reasonable explanation of what took place. Now, before we get to uh, some of the, the proofs that we see of the resurrection. I, I want to point out what some of the kind of objections to the resurrection have been down through uh, the ages. And they are in broad categories. There, there's all kinds of uh, uh, nuances 
to these, but I'm, I'm going to give you five that are big general categories that uh, we often see. Um, and, and the reason is, by the way, in terms of why, why are there all these objections out there? It's because even those outside of the faith somehow know that the resurrection is at the very core of Christianity and the truth of Christianity. And what we do hinges upon that truth. So let me give you uh, some of these. One would be to try to discredit the documentary uh, evidence, uh, whether it's uh, in, in the scripture, uh, trying to undercut the authors of the scripture, the scripture itself, and, uh, and, and so on. Uh, but as you look at the authors of the scripture, you see these are, these are competent. These are, are, are people of integrity. But not only that, think of motive. What, what did they get out of writing this if it wasn't true? Well, for many of them, they were killed. That's what they got out of it. They were persecuted. There, there wasn't a, a, a big reward if this is not true. Another theory is often called the swoon theory, and that is basically that, that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. They, uh, they thought he was dead. They took him down. They put him into a, a tomb, and uh, after they closed it up, the coolness of the tomb revived him, and then he was able to escape from that tomb and made appearances and so on. He wasn't really dead in the first place, according to that theory. Now, there's lots of problems with that theory. Um, the first problem is that the, the soldiers that, that came to put a sword in his side to kill him said he's already dead. Now, these were experts. They did this all the time. They had probably each seen hundreds of people die by crucifixion. So there's that. But also, uh, the idea that, that he would revive enough to be able to go around, to travel all around, make appearances. There's no indication he was limping because of these big wounds in his feet and ankles and his hands and because he had been through so many beatings and that type of thing. There is none of that in the appearances. The next three we're actually going to deal with uh, in this message, but let me just mention them to you. The, the fraud theory, which is basically that the disciples came and they stole his body. Uh, they hid the body and they circulated the rumor that, that Jesus was resurrected. Uh, the mistake theory, that women went to the, the wrong tomb. They went to an old deserted tomb. It was empty. And so they uh, went and started the rumor that he was resurrected. Uh, 
problems with that, which we'll talk about. And, and then the vision theory, that these were really hallucinations, that uh, there was no uh, physical appearances, they were hallucinations. Now, that assumes that those who saw him were expecting to see him, which is not the case at all, makes them also guilty of deception. Now, these are all interesting, but uh, none of them are plausible. In fact, they aren't the reasonable explanation, and I think we'll, we'll see this as we go on. So here's what, what we want to propose today, that the resurrection is the most reasonable explanation of what happened. There are many things that God asks us to step out on faith and believe. There's many, uh, many things like that in the faith. We're called to have faith and to, and to step out. But when it comes to the resurrection, we aren't just called to step out in blind faith. God saw fit to give us evidences, proofs, and there's more evidence for the resurrection than, than most things that we accept as, as history. Uh, Thomas Arnold, a professor of history at Oxford uh, University, it's not old Miss. There's another Oxford apparently across, over in the other side of the ocean. Uh, this is, he said that it's the best attested fact in history. Sir Edward Clark was an attorney. He said this, as a lawyer, I've made a prolonged study of the evidences for the events of the first Easter day. To me, the evidence is conclusive. And over and over again in the high court, I have secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. So let's look at some of that evidence. And when I say some of it, there are volumes written on these and others. And we have only a few minutes, so we're going to hit some of the major categories. So first of all, let's, let's go back to the tomb, the tomb after Jesus' death. And we, we read about the stone. Uh, here's what it says in Matthew 27. When it was evening, there was a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus, he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. He rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. So this is the tomb of Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, it was a new tomb. It was not in an obscure place. He was a wealthy person, uh, not a place that would be out of the way, easily mistaken. And even if it were, how easy it would be for if the, the women had gone to a tomb and they had, had mistakenly went to some old empty, uh, abandoned uh, tomb that uh, hadn't been used. How easy it would have been to track down Joseph and say, wait a minute, where was that tomb? 
or to ask anybody, where is the tomb that Joseph gave to Jesus? Matthew calls the stone a great stone. Mark says it is exceedingly great. Great meaning big, a big stone. In fact, in Mark, we see that uh, it records that the women that were going to the tomb, they were fretting over uh, how are we going to get in there because of the stone that was put in front of it. And we see also not just the stone, but the guard and the seal of that tomb. Matthew 27. The next, verse 62, the next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said that Uh, While he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead. And that last fraud, they were saying, will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So here we have the chief priests and the Pharisees. Uh, their concern. Okay, Jesus has been put in, in a tomb. And uh, they, they weren't worried that he would uh, actually be resurrected. But they were worried that the disciples would come and, and steal him. And then start a, a rumor, steal the body. So it speaks of a guard Um, that would be made up typically of at least four soldiers, not just a guard, meaning one person. So here we have an account of those who wouldn't call themselves believers at all. These soldiers were, were given a task. They were probably saying, what did we do to get assigned to this? Uh, like it's punishment all, it's an all nighter, um, you know, but then again, they might have said, well, this is going to be easy. We're just guarding a, a dead man. And they weren't worried about the disciples coming. They'd all run away. They had all showed themselves to be cowards and, and deniers. So they had no worries at that point. And then there's also the seal uh, that it speaks about. Now, that would be an official cord that would be put across uh, around the rock and with clay it would be sealed so that if, if the stone was moved or somebody tampered with it, that official seal, and it was illegal to break that seal, that uh, it would be disturbed. They'd be breaking the law. Now, let's move forward at, at, at the tomb uh, in terms of time. Luke 24 says, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they, and this is the women, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. The tomb was empty. Stones rolled away, an empty tomb. William Lane Craig, a philosopher and author, 
says, when therefore the disciples began to preach the resurrection in Jerusalem and people responded, and when religious authorities stood helplessly by, the tomb must have been empty. You see what he's saying? He's saying, look, you're, they're, they're in the same town and they're preaching about the resurrection and the religious guys are just, they have no response whatsoever. He's saying the tomb had to be empty. Now, let me give you a side note. Um, and that is that if, if the resurrection of Jesus were, were just a tale that, that somebody wanted to create, just, just a story, then it's likely that the first witnesses of the empty tomb and of Jesus wouldn't have been women. Here's why. Stay with me, okay? Celsus, who was a Greek philosopher, lived in the second century A.D., he hated Christianity. He was antagonistic to it. One of the arguments he thought was one of his strongest arguments was this. Christianity can't be true because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. And we all know women are hysterical. And I don't think he meant funny when he said they're hysterical. Now, remember... That's Celsus. I didn't say that, okay? <laughs> but that was the view. That was what they thought. Women? What? Who cares what they saw? And you're saying they were the first ones? So the Christian philosopher J.P. Moreland says this. In first century Judaism, a woman's testimony was virtually worthless. A woman was not allowed to give testimony in a court of law except on rare occasions. No one would have invented a story and made women the first witnesses to the empty tomb. The fact is included in the Gospels because the Gospels are attempting to describe what actually happened. That's the only reason you'd say, yeah, and the, and the first witnesses were these women. Why would they say that if they were making it up? Instead, they would have, they would have picked some, uh, some men that everyone respected and could testify and so on and say, the, this was the first witness. Yeah, maybe some women saw him later. But, but the reason they said that the women saw him first is because they were describing what actually happened. They weren't trying to make up a, a story. And then we, we see the guard story, Matthew 28. Uh, this is from our, our passage, but I didn't uh, read this far. Down in verse 11, it says, While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. You get it? Here's the guards. Remember, they, they were like dead men. They saw this thing happening. So they went into the city, told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a, a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while he was asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. 
So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story's been spread among the Jews to this day. So what's the problem? That's not even a good story. That's not even a, a good lie. Why not? Well, because if, if they admitted that they were asleep, they could have been executed. That's what would have happened to them. It was abandoning their post. Doesn't say how many of them, but what, what would be the likelihood that, that four or more would all be asleep at the same time? And then further, if they were asleep, how did they know it was his disciples that came and stole him away? And yet that was the story. And they circulated it. Apparently it was good enough for them and, and many others who accepted the story. What's that tell us? Well, it tells me that some will go to all lengths to deny the resurrection. The soldiers were uh, apparently the only human eyewitnesses. The chief priests heard the truth, and then they made up a story. And then we see the appearances. 1 Corinthians 15. He, he, that's Jesus, was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Remember that. Most of them are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So he, Paul there is basically daring them and saying, look, they, they're still alive, the ones that saw him. Go ask them. He's not trying to hide who the witnesses were, go ask them. And then you add to those appearances, Mary in the garden, the women by the wayside, disciples on the road to Emmaus, Thomas, seven disciples on the seashore. Maybe it was hallucinations. Well, the problem is that it doesn't fit with your classic hallucinations because it was to all sorts of people in all sorts of different circumstances, all times of the day and night, and all kinds of people, and typically in hallucinations, the person hallucinating is expecting or wants to see something. Someone loses a loved one on a certain date, 5.30 p.m. on this date, and every year they see that person they believe. They expect it. The women didn't expect what they saw. They were going to uh, finally finish preparing the body for permanent burial. The disciples didn't even believe the women when they came back and, and told them. Others were frightened. Others thought, this is a ghost. Now, if you're going to fake a resurrection, you shouldn't tell the story to those who can go to the people that were around then and check it out because they're still alive. And then other testimonies. 
uh, first of all, of, of enemies, not, not friends, not ones that would want to promote a resurrection. When the disciples began to preach the gospel and the resurrection in Jerusalem, the very city he was killed and buried, no one challenged the facts. They were told to stop preaching, but the enemies were silent in terms of the resurrection. One historian wrote, the silence of the Jews speaks louder than the voice of the Christians. You know what the only response was? After they told them to stop preaching the resurrection, they never disputed, they never debated them about whether there was a resurrection or not. The only response was violence, persecution against them when they couldn't stop preaching. The reality is the Christian church would never have gotten off the ground if the resurrection was disproved. And all they had to do was produce his body. That's all. And then the testimony of followers. After Jesus' death, after his crucifixion, you had a, a bunch of followers who figured, I guess he wasn't the Messiah. They were disillusioned. They ran away. And that band that had already gone back to fishing, that band of disillusioned people turned the world upside down. Peter, the denier, becomes Peter, the rock, the professor, the one who professes him. Saul, the persecutor of Christ, becomes Paul. No one ever loved Jesus more. Thomas, the doubter, becomes Thomas, who, who says, my Lord and my God, and professes his faith. The disciples went to their deaths and none of them, not one of them, said the resurrection did not happen. Typically, people will not die for something they know to be a lie. Someone said liars make poor martyrs. And then there's the existence of the church. Again, William Craig the simple fact that, that the Christian fellowship founded on belief in Jesus' resurrection came into existence and flourished in the very city where he was executed and buried is powerful evidence for the historicity of the empty tomb. The disciples had no incentive to start a church if there was no resurrection. If all that had happened was the, the crucifixion and the burial, if all that had happened was that Jesus was martyred, then that would have been the end of Christianity. In fact, history tells us there were various messianic movements before and after Jesus that would begin to uh, get organized and, and get some followers and then Sometimes the leader was killed, and then that was that. It went, went away. Nobody followed them. But in the case 
of the followers of Christ, not only did the church not collapse, but it grew rapidly in the first 300 years. It was in every part of the whole Roman Empire. And we continue to this day. This is a part of the testimony of the truth of the resurrection. That his church meets every Sunday to celebrate that. So there's some of the evidence. You might be saying, yeah, but I, you know, I need more proof. If you're thinking that, you may be kidding yourself. The proof is there. Let me show you something really amazing. In, in Matthew 28, verse 16, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. This is after the crucifixion, after he's put in the grave, after he's raised from the dead, he's made appearances. And it says, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. He's right there in front of them. They see him. What more evidence would one want than that? One commentator said there's almost no way that verse could exist if it weren't true. They had plenty of evidence. They were standing there looking at Jesus and some doubted. So unbelief doesn't come just from a lack of evidence. Unbelief prevails over or remains in spite of evidence. They had all kinds of evidence and didn't believe. If you think you'll believe, if you only have more evidence, you might not know your own heart. Because there's something in our heart that is a positive resistance to believing. And until you realize that, you'll never believe. He could stand here right next to me and some would doubt. So what will you do? Well, please, don't not believe out of a fear of what it will mean in my life. Don't let that be what holds you back. A fear of what does it mean to follow Jesus. Believe. And then step by step, he will walk you through that. The most reasonable explanation is that Jesus was resurrected and the most reasonable response is to believe, to trust in Jesus Christ alone for our eternal life and our only hope. Let's bow together. Lord, will you give us the ability 
to believe that which is true and the comfort in knowing that you have revealed that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.